ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Welcome to Speaking Out. Mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. With Larissa Barrett. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. What I say to people is that you really have to dig deep into it and think about it and make your own decision. And I believe that if people do do that, you think, if the boot was on another foot, would I want this for me? Is this enough for me if Aboriginal people were in power and I, and I lived the life of an Aboriginal person? Would coming and advising with all the things that it's not going to change, it's, not, it's been um, delivered as a panacea. It's been delivered as a panacea that's going to fix all ails. We all know that's not true, but that's the general uh, conversation. It's not, going to, it's not going to affect uh, non-Aboriginal people. But let me tell you something. For us to have true equity in this country, white Australia is going to have to hurt because you're going to have to give something, not just your vote. The Voice, a deep dive. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. It's not long now until we'll be asked whether to recognise First Nations people in our constitution through an Indigenous voice to Parliament. The campaign has been extensive and at times divisive, with both sides of the debate putting forward their arguments for and against the proposal. It's been six years since the idea of an Indigenous voice was first put to the Australian public as part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Carla Grant has been a First Nations journalist for more than three decades and has covered a number of landmark moments in Indigenous affairs, including Paul Keating's 1992 Redfern Park speech, the National Apology to the Stolen Generations and the Northern Territory Intervention. Hosted by the Australian Museum, Carla sat down with lawyer Teela Reid and Indigenous rights advocate Auntie Bronwyn Penrith to reflect on whether an Indigenous voice to Parliament is the best way to improve the lives of First Nations people. Teela Reid is a storyteller and criminal defence lawyer who has been a key advocate for the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And Auntie Bronwyn Penrith has been a part of a number of campaigns and community-led organisations since the 1970s, including the iconic Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra. Oh, well, from the time I came to Sydney when I was about 19 years old, I came at a time when I think uh, Aboriginal people were coming from all, from all around New South Wales in particular that I was aware of. And so I knew some of the people who were involved in um, having conversations around what, what the status quo was at the time. At that time it was assimilation. Assimilation was the word, another Asian word. So I think as young people, at that time we felt that there should be more. Actually... It's exactly why I feel the same today. There should be more. And so we started to lobby and um, challenge, challenge the status quo, which also at the time included challenging some of the old Aboriginal organisations like Land Trust and so on. And that's how we, we became known as uh, black radicals, really, because we were challenging the status quo, which also included the, um, uh, some of the Aboriginal organisations. The challenge of having um, all Aboriginal community control that was brought about by that particular group of radicals in Redfern. Uh, prior to that, the thought was that Aboriginal people could not run their own organisations, run their own self, run their own lives. Every, everything I say it just reminds me that things are not that much different today, which, which is really sad because it was over 50 years ago. 
So we became, uh, we started off doing things like reading, educating ourselves, coming to understand the sort of things that was happening, trying to understand what government was, where people were coming from, uh, and we found that protest, direct action was the best way that we could get attention, because otherwise you couldn't get into the meetings, you had no status in the meetings, and so using that direct action of coming to the streets, using theatre and street theatre, well, some of the things that started in Redfern in those days was a way of raising our voice uh, to community, reflecting back at us and Aboriginal people the sort of things that were happening, the sort of things that we were saying, which wasn't being said in the public domain by non-Aboriginal people and not being said by Aboriginal people in the leadership either. Mm. And you were part of the 1972 uh, 10 Embassy as well. What was that like? Yeah, well, we all, out of all of those conversations, I guess we were looking for something really substantial. How could we really, really state our claims? And we needed the focal point. And I have to hand it to the men. They came up with the idea. And so they, they uh, went down to Canberra and, uh, and set up the, their uh, umbrella. Of course, the, the idea went like wildfire. It just caught the imagination of all, all the black folks around the country. And people started coming from everywhere and we with the help of the student unions and so on, uh, we'd arrange buses and transport people to come. But us as women, we're starting to talk to some of the women's organisations at that time. The Women's Electoral Lobby is one that comes to mind. Conversations with Jermaine Greer and uh, with Bobby Sykes, people of that calibre. Again, you're bridging that gap. You're bridging a gap between what people in the community, everyday people thought and did, and what was happening at, a, at what you might call a higher level that may, may have the attention of um, government and uh, decision makers. Now, uh, Teela, you're from a younger generation of First Nations activism. I wanted to ask you about that concept of recognition and, you know, can you take us through, um, you know, what is recognition and what does it actually mean and, and what form can it take? Because there are many forms of, you know, different models around the world and forms of recognition that, you know, that we've seen around the, the globe with other First Nations people. Yeah, um... Firstly, thank you, Aunt, for taking us back there to those days. It reminded me of um, that book written by the late Rob Riley um, as he retells some of how they started that. And, yeah, I, it's always a privilege to be joined by elders in these conversations. Um, I, yeah, I come to the yarn essentially for, first and foremost, as a First Nations woman, born and raised on my country and kind of actually started out in the kind of, you know, some of my first lessons in politics was rocking off to land council and meetings, um, listening to elders talk hard politics. And so, you know, I see my role as a lawyer just really an extension of that. What is recognition? I mean... <laughs> It takes many forms around the world. Um, you can kind of see different examples of recognition on what some lawyers would explain as a, a spectrum. So treaty is also a form of recognition. Voice is a form of recognition. In Scandinavia, the Indigenous peoples have their own parliaments. Recognition is a concept that when invaders essentially had first contact with Indigenous peoples, uh, they engaged in 
negotiation and what we would expect today, good faith negotiations. So, you know, historically in places like Canada or Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, they do have these historical treaty-making processes because there was, in fact, recognition that the land itself was occupied. In Australia, that never happened. So it really takes us right back to this kind of beginning conversation around, you know, essentially you can read Cook's diaries. He was ordered to seek the consent of the natives. In his own journal, he he betrayed that order. And so, you know, there still hasn't been that concept of recognition fulfilled in Australia. In its modern era, you know, there's been almost two decades now of this kind of conversation about recognition. Um, Some people might remember, you know, there was an education campaign that was the big red neon R. And I would say that, you know, lots of grassroots activists actually did you know, resist that movement. There was clearly a resistance there around not wanting to be part of this recognition process, but there was always the lingering question in Australia if the state was ever going to recognise First Nations peoples at all, what form might that take? And as a result of the past government and the leader of the opposition, who was Bill Shorten at the time, um, they had created a committee that said, well, we'll task the committee with um, being able to go out and ask First Nations peoples, essentially, what form of recognition might be acceptable within the First Nations communities. There was clearly lots of conversations about the history of activism, the betrayal after betrayal of governments um, in our communities. And so these were difficult conversations. We did have elders um, and activists who and advocates who had understood the and lived the experience of um, governments not acting in good faith. And so... The voice is one example of many different forms of recognition that you will see in liberal democracies around the world. Now, of course, we have to discuss what it was that brought us here to this point in time where we're we're now on the cusp of having a a referendum, and that brings us to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Briefly, the Uluru Statement was written at the 2017 Uluru Convention after 12 regional dialogues and consultations were held around the country with First Nations people to talk about options for recognition and um, you know I think you speak of the referendum council where you talked about the you know all the consultations that were held you know that then culminated in a gathering of over 250 First Nations delegates at the Uluru Convention who agreed on the three key recommendations which form the the statement and it called for the establishment of a First Nations voice to be enshrined in the constitution a Makarata commission to supervise a agreement-making and treaties and truth-telling. So I think we've got the um, key recommendations up there on the screen for everyone to have a read of. But, Teela, can you unpack the recommendations for us and explain the, you know, the sequence of voice, treaty, truth and why that is so Im- important? Yeah, I think in order to understand this yarn we're having and where we're at in this time, it's also important to reflect on 1967. Um, My role uh, when I was invited to uh, facilitate conversations was 
on a very narrow issue, which was um, the race power in the Australian Constitution. So um, hands up if you have read your Constitution. It always, yeah, see, this is the thing, like not many Australians actually have read their own document. And so it is both as a black fella and a lawyer quite a task having the conversation because we know having the lived experience um, of laws and the impact of laws and so understanding the voice it really is also not just understanding the statement itself but I think reflecting on the historical historical impact of you know examples like 67 only four uh, only eight out of 44 referendums in Australian history have passed and so the task is one of the most difficult democratic tasks in the world. And so in 67, what was the key change there was prior to 67, the states and colonies had retained the power to make laws in respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So laws to basically lawfully massacre us, the stolen generations, to dispossess us of our land, property law, had all been retained within the power of the states. 67 changed that because up until that point, um, the federal parliament did not have the power. They could not make laws, and that was the key change. And so what we've seen culminate in those decades gone by is both positive and detrimental laws um, on First Nations peoples and in particular our communities. And so I do want people to really understand the difficulty that our communities are going through at the moment, having this co collective conversation for the nation, because each community and each generation has had as well its own impact um, and lived experience with Australian laws. And so some people spoke about, for example, and when I delivered the uh, facilitation of the conversation on the race power, which is a very unique power to Australia, when people say, you know, is Australia racist? How does racism work in Australia? It is very much a fundamental systemic issue. Australia was founded with a power you don't see around the world, and it's only ever been used in the context of First Nations peoples. And so post-67, there was a key case from the Nunanjeri Nation. The women down there had tested their case all the way to the High Court, arguing that post-67, only Parliament could make positive laws to the benefit of communities, but the High Court said actually, I quote, we can make both beneficial and detrimental laws in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So when people came to this conversation in relation to the dialogues, they were actually presented with five different models of what recognition might look like. And over the course of those conversations, which I was only involved in the Sydney one and I wasn't at Uluru because I was at Harvard at that time. But essentially, the, while not all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people agree, the process set a consensus position. And that was to say that voice treaty truth is the only acceptable path forward for the nation if the nation was going to answer the question of recognition. And so the sequence um, is very intentional um, 
because in Australia, if you're ever going to have a treaty, it's going to be a creature of legislation. That's a fact. Um, it can be changed, it can be amended into the future, it'll always be at the helm of parliament. And so treaty was absolutely certainly front of mind in a lot of these conversations, but what we don't have in Australia is a consistent mechanism that can exist beyond the cycles of our parliament. What we are now seeing play out, which is also, I think, um, very harmful to our communities, and I urge you to reach out with care to our communities when you're having these conversations, it's that, again, we're seeing Indigenous issues become a political football for political parties. But what um, the sequence is about, it's that basically there, there ought to be many treaties in this nation, um, given that we are over 250 First Nations. It makes us distinctly different as well to New Zealand, for example. New Zealand was founded on the Treaty of Waitangi. They have one particular First Nations culture there that that negotiation process happened with, while it does have its limitations, it made the ge geography of those kinds of um, agreement-making processes much easier. And New Zealand doesn't have a written constitution like we do that was formed in 1901. So the idea behind it essentially um, was that well, the voice could be a mechanism to exist for future generations when it comes to the fact that there should be many treaties and not just one treaty. And we also have politicians, you know, that are First Nations or interested in First Nations issues, but they are also subject to their political party ideologies and election processes. So that's the idea behind it and that it is that sequence for a reason. Meanwhile, we know at the jurisdictional level, these things can happen in parallel and at the same time, which is exactly what we're seeing in jurisdictions like Victoria. So we have a very, uh, we have a very complex federation. When you look outside of Australia, um, it makes us distinctly different in the way, one, we were founded and two, the actual foundation of that relationship with First Nations peoples has really not been settled. You know, you spoke about before that um, history of activism. Next year it will be the 200th year of the Wiradjuri War, of when Governor Brisbane declared war on the Wiradjuri people. There's never been a resolution to that war. And so I think we are a smart enough people with our you know, history of activism to be able to have these conversations at the same time. That's lawyer and advocate Teela Reid. She was speaking during a panel discussion hosted by the Australian Museum in Sydney. In 2022, Teela was awarded the Australian Law Awards Indigenous Leader of the Year. She's also the co-founder of Blackfella Book Club, an Instagram page honouring First Nations people as the original storytellers. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing you know, respecting the world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well.
Coming up, more from the Australian Museum's recent conversation exploring implications of an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Right now, though, some music from Groot Island singer-songwriter Emily Waramara. To our favorite song To you all night long And it's night time Catch another break and unwind I'll be there with you With you Real soon your night going how is your world shining does it win does it how does it blow just for you i will refuse nothing and i won't abuse nothing will i ever get the chance to know the real you i'm cruising packing up our bags we're moving listen to our favorite song Another break in a night I'll be there with you We're 
Listen to our favorite song to you all night long. And it's night time, catch another break and unwind. I'll be there with you, with you, real soon. That's Emily Warramara with her song Cruisin'. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Arnie Bronwyn Penrith has been at the coalface of efforts to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people for more than half a century. Arnie Bronwyn is an active member of the Redfern Aboriginal community and has been involved in some of the most iconic movements for change in Australian political history. But her stance on an Indigenous voice to Parliament is perhaps not what you would expect. Yeah. Now, Arnie Bronwyn, from all your experience, do you believe the recommendations of the Uluru Statement are the best way forward and is it enough? Right. Well, I'd like to reel back too in time. Uh, Just a comment about the uh, 1967 uh, referendum, which I'd lived through in Sydney at that time. Uh, The the common information amongst uh, Aboriginal people was that uh, we were going to get the right to vote. It wasn't that at all. We already had the right to vote. My grandmother would already have been voting for 20 years at that point. And for the reasons that Taylor said, was, was the actual reasons, the questions in that referendum. I'm just pointing that out because I think the confusion then is the, as the confusion uh, probably is now. And what I want to go back to is the reasons all those people went to Uluru. Now, there's this huge campaign, 10 million now the government would like to chuck around $10 million, $10 million spent on, on this campaign, which is to have some recognition, something put in the preamble of the Constitution. This is how I understand it, right? And so that's why they had all those meetings, all those, all those regional meetings, and elected delegates to go to Uluru and say, we do not think there is enough to have recognition in the preamble. It's not enough. They weren't given the right to go there and say, well, let's put it in the main, let, let's develop another plan. Some people walked out of that, uh, what I call radicals, or people who thought, who realised that they weren't sent there to have that second part of that conversation. They were sent there to have the first part. And the whole lot, and they all uh, voted against having And, you know, what? something that worries me now, if I'm looking outside, if I'm looking at the noise around, is that many of the people who were also willing to uh, have something put in the preamble of the Constitution are the same people who are willing to go to, you know, to the next step. So we didn't get that, so we'll get this. Anyway, that, that's, uh, that's, by, that's by the way, I don't think. So I don't think those conversations should not have happened there. I don't think over three or four days that you can develop the statement that came out of there. I just don't believe... There were fantastic wordsmiths there, that's for sure. Megan Davis, you know, Noel Pearson, they're fantastic uh, with words. However, for the, for, the, for the delegates that went up there at that time, and of course they were, I don't know, a few short, were the ones that left. So, you know, I don't know about... I question the legitimacy of that meeting when, when I think about that. 
I wasn't there. I'm just watching all this un- unfold. I would have, for me, it would be, you go there not knowing what the other delegates are going to say. They all say, no, this is not enough for us to be in the preamble. And then they have to come back to their mob for the next step. But they decided over three or four days, I don't know how many days it was, to go ahead and put forward the Uluru Statement from the heart, which is an absolutely beautiful statement, and from the heart. I question the legitimacy of it, though, because over those few days with those people, I don't think they were meant to do that, and I don't know that that's even possible in that short time. What was the rest of the question? Mm. I just want <laughs> wondering, you know, is, is it enough? Uh, you know, what do you think needs to be done to address, you know, the disadvantage that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face? Oh, my goodness. To address it, the disadvantage? I don't that's know a when big we'll, question, yes. I don't really know when we'll get to that. Mm. Uh, a voice certainly won't do it. I mean, that, that's going to take time and a, whole, and a whole lot of work, and that work mainly goes from people on the ground who work with Aboriginal people every day from, from the communities. That's where that work needs to be done. Well, now, so that then brings us to, you know, the referendum. Last year we saw Prime Minister Albanese in his election victory speech make a commitment to implementing the Uluru Statement in full and also committing to a referendum to vote on recognising First Nations people in the Constitution through a voice to Parliament. Now, Teela, what is the purpose of a referendum and, and why do we need to have one? Yeah, well, speaking of referendums, you know, some of you in here might have voted in the Republic referendum. And in fact, that was two questions at that referendum. There was actually, the second question wasn't just the model, it was a preamble um, in recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And it was outright rejected. Well, both questions were. Um, And so... In terms of the process, we are almost just over three decades over, you know, since having a referendum vote. It's pretty, you know, extraordinary. Australia is very kind of almost stuck in time a little bit. If you look at other countries like Ireland, they have referendum after referendum after referendum and they change, you know, people go to a public vote often on many issues and they have full-on commissions and um, processes set up. I think, firstly, I would say about the referendum process, it's that it's a very new process in our time and place. Um, Australia has never had a referendum, obviously, um, in the era of social media, misinformation, disinformation. And in fact, one of the uh, difficulties of engaging in the conversation is that some people, including many non-Indigenous Australians whose constitution this is, do not understand the purpose of a referendum. It really is about whether or not the people are going to accept a principle, whether the principle of a voice ought to exist or not. Um, And the question is a very narrow question um, that we will soon know the answer after October 14. Um, And it really is about the fact that if and when it does pass, then the process of nation building in relation to centering First Nations voices at the local level begins that conversation. Um, 
It's interesting because there are other things in the Constitution, kind of like, you know, the High Court, for example, is an institution set within the High Court via a principle. The legislation that actually sets it up isn't in there. And so I think, you know, people need to be conscious when they're talking about the referendum and the questions they're asking themselves or having conversations in their book clubs or baristas. Some questions are totally irrelevant to the process we're about to undertake, which is, for example, you know, some questions like, what might the voice talk about in the future is is almost as akin to asking what might the high court decide in two years like it's kind of an a kind of null and void question at this point in time and so the purpose of it really is just simply to enshrine a principle or not in the nation it requires a double majority it's a higher test than uh, plebiscide uh, people will remember the plebiscite when we went to a public vote for um, marriage equality. I think 63% uh, of Australians around that uh, voted in favour. That was simply an advisory vote. It wasn't binding on the government at all, but it did change that legislation. A referendum is binding. The outcome is binding. And so for many of us, it will be the first referendum in our lifetimes that we will be voting on. And I think it's so important for each and every one of us to listen to all sides of um, the debate, including the diversity of views within the First Nations community. You know, we wake up and we have to listen to white politicians argue, debate, disagree, and it's almost like an extra um, demand is placed on us as First Nations peoples to, to be um, always, you know, this one-size model fits all, and no one expects that of mainstream Australia. And so I do hope that when people are making an informed decision, and that's always been my key in this, is to hope that people understand what they are voting on, what the question is, what the amendment will be, and try and put out the noise around this, because we're also seeing so many dangerous tactics imported from the United States, um, you know, and I think it's been very detrimental to many people. And I just hope that when you are talking to First Nations peoples, don't expect them to um, bear that cultural load, but also respect their view. If they disagree with it, then okay. You still have a choice to make. Um, and that, you know, that's part of living in a democracy is also respecting diverse views. So, yeah, there sometimes seems to be a double standard when it comes to First Nations peoples, when in fact we are many different diverse voices and that's what makes our community so strong. I mean, that's why we've been able to exist since time immemorial. Like, we're such a, such a blessing to, I think, the world, given that we are the oldest surviving cultures. So please take care. Well said. <laughs> now, let's just uh, take a look at the actual referendum question, and I think we've got it. Um, we'll get it on the screen. And, uh, Teela, can you just sort of talk us through that question? So this is the standard kind of format that a question must be proposed in, which you might remember, Aunt, from 67, there was a similar, the exact same format, a proposed law to alter the constitution to recognise the first peoples of Australia by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. Do you approve? Unlike an election, you know, you're not numbering things, you, you write yes or you write no. What we've seen from the coalition is try and spark a debate 
that, you know, the referendum itself is rigged because the AEC also accepts a tick as a yes, but that's because the legislation, the Referendum Machinery Act, has savings provisions in it, which means when you reasonably bring your reasonable mind to bear, a tick generally means yes, but a no can mean both, so that's ambiguous. So, um, but simply, you just have to write yes or no on the day. And I just wanted to ask, like, I'm sure people here are wondering, why must the voice be enshrined in the Constitution? Obviously, we're having this referendum to make that alteration to the Constitution, but why must it be enshrined? Well, I think Australia is very used to Aboriginal voices. It's not like we haven't had them in the past. We've had the NAC, the Katia, we've had we've had Aboriginal advisory bodies throughout history. Um, you know, so I think as well some of the fear campaign around what might this look like, it's going to change, that's our reality already. And uh, the sky didn't fall into the nation in relation to that. But essentially what, what happened during those previous kinds of... Um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander bodies was that once they, you know, started to speak truth to power for their communities, they were abolished at the stroke of a pen. It's really just about ensuring it exists, that it's there, that it's a fundamental principle of the democracy and that, you know, it can also grow in a with future generations. What the voice might look like if it does pass um, might be, you know, it, it might take it at least 12 months to build, but at what it might look like in 30 years could also look very different. But the fact it exists beyond these volatile political cycles that we see between the left and the right, we know that our lived experience is that the gap is not closing. Those on the front line um, in community every day have a mechanism to put their views forward. And yeah, it's, I mean, it's a very straightforward uh, kind of question and proposal. And, yeah, I don't know what else you want to mm, ask me about yeah. that. Arnie Bronwyn, I might bring you in here uh, now. I was almost asleep. Listen well, to don't, 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 <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> not, not bedtime yet. Um, <laughs> what, what are your thoughts on this referendum question? I mean, you were around well, in 1967. Well, I don't think we should be even having one. Mm. I want to say a couple of things. One is, it is a, it's a, you know, it's neat to say that all those voices were, were stopped by the government because, um, uh, because they started uh, asking the tough questions. But, you know, we're that sick. It's my personal experience we're that sick, which uh, this voice is often compared to. I ran some of those polls in Redfern, and you had, like, 70 people voting out of possible thousands. And I understand that that was, uh, there wasn't a lot of people voting, Aboriginal people voting for the elected members of, the, of, of ATSIC, for their regional members and so on. It wasn't well supported by the population. And I think that's one of the reasons. Another reason may be that um, some of the male leadership was very questionable. So many, many of these things have failed. From, from, the Mar from Marbo, we got WIC, we got Native Title. Useless legislation. The land rights legislation, which I lived through, those green papers talking about the land of fighting and marching for land rights, was never enough. And so we have a whole history of not quite enough, not quite going through to, with it. I'm on a number of advisory um, uh, committees. 
Most of the time when push comes to shove, it stops there. One of the things that I want to mention, you may remember too, was when, when the City of Sydney Council wanted to put the word invasion into their writings, into their official papers, that were invaded. And that was such a... That brought out so much racism. Brought out so much racism. And I recall that um, Councillor Hoff, whom, whom I, my dad is a yes voter, <laughs> Councillor Hoff, uh, Marcel Hoff, was terribly abused because she, uh, she was the person who drove the idea of putting the word invasion in the official papers of the City of Sydney Council. Racism is alive and well. I'm kind of of the opinion that people are racist until they learn otherwise. I hope. What I say to people about this, and I'm not a, I'm not a public speaker about the no vote. These are mainly my personal views. What I say to people is that you really have to dig deep into it and think about it and make your own decision. And I believe that if people do do that, you think, if the boot was on another foot, would I want this for me? Is this enough for me if Aboriginal people were in power and I, and I lived the life of an Aboriginal person? Would coming and advising with all the things that it's not going to change, it's, not, it's been um, delivered as a panacea. It's been delivered as a panacea that's going to fix all ails. We all know that's not true, but that's the general uh, conversation. It's not, gonna, it's not going to affect uh, non-Aboriginal people. But let me tell you something. For us to have true equity in this country, white Australia is going to have to hurt because you're going to have to give something, not just your vote. You're going to have to give over something because that's what, that's what true equity is going to be. It's going to be like. And I think the sooner we, get, we dig down to that instead of, Thinking around the edges, which I, which I believe advisory councils are. You know, everybody. When we go now, we're advisor, Now we're in advisory councils, advising different um, areas and groups. But still, we want to get to the table, and a lot of blackfellas will say we want to own that table. We don't just want to be thinking around the edges no more. Over 50 years of being involved uh, and looking at black life, we know that uh, we know that the voice is not going to. Uh, make any difference to a lot of the state concerns. The things that really affect the lives of Aboriginal people, that is taking away of the children, that is incarceration rates. I suppose at some point we're going to get to a question of, and people have asked me this, how are you going to feel if uh, the no vote gets up? Uh, we'll go back to doing what we've always done and fight. We'll have a target, this is what we want to do, and fight it. And can I just uh, remind you of something else? In the fight for land rights at Waddy Creek, if you know anything about your history, and, you know, I was lucky enough to... When I first came to Sydney, I met Vincent Lingari. I I, followed people down there and sat in the back of the room, just awestruck by them old fellows and how strong they were. He didn't give up. And his people starved out there at Waddy Creek. He did not give up. He would not take less, he would not take advice, he would not take anything less than what he was asking for. I guess these are some of the reasons why I've decided that I won't be voting for an advisory to the government. Well, Teela, we've heard what Arnie the, Bronwyn... The sound of one hand clapping. <laughs> we've heard what Arnie Bronwyn has had to say, you know, about... Um, you know, feeling that maybe the, the voice to parliament may not have 
en enough power to affect positive change for our people. I mean, if, if it is successful at a referendum, um, how, how will the voice help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in practical terms? Like, how will it impact on us and, you know, in a positive way? If the referendum is successful, um, there will need to be a future of actually designing what it might look like. You know, I actually agree with Art that it's not going to be a panacea of this monolith achieving everything, and that's something that I have said to hard yes campaigners. What I've witnessed travelling the country, having these conversations with Australians, is that, you know, you've got a hard yes and you've got a hard no, and actually most people are just floating in between somewhere in the middle ground. And somewhere in the middle ground is the truth. And so... You know, the voice, so in my hometown um, in central western New South Wales, an issue that is um, important to us in our community is clean water. When I go home, we can't even drink water out of the tap. And so, but that issue, if First Nations communities were to prioritise that on behalf of their community, is beneficial to all Australians. Like, um, and so what I don't want to do in response to that is also anticipate what other communities might choose to do practically in their communities. But the government, um, have that, as they have set out the issues that they would be willing to address, which is, um, and I think it is important to talk about the limitations of the voice um, and that it won't be able to deal with every issue of First Nations communities. The government has, in its design principles, said that this will be a future-making, local decision-making exercise for the nation, um, and that it'll be about jobs, health, education and housing. Are essentially, um, it makes sense that they would say that, because the federal parliament is generally responsible for those enormous key issues. I hope practically one of the things it'll do and that I will be um, hoping to work towards if it is successful is that more of a synergy between um, the jurisdictions and the federal parliament. One of the things that has been very detrimental in, in Indigenous policy, it's that the, the federal parliament will say they're not responsible and the states will say they're not responsible and suddenly you've got, you know, this issue of different parliaments playing off each other when it comes to funding or key decisions um, about our community. So I think they're definitely in Australia which you don't see in other parts of the world. You know, I've had the privilege of living on Turtle Island in Canada as well, where what you see is their provinces or their jurisdictions actually retain power um, in, a, in a more, I guess, robust way than what their federal parliament does. So it looks quite different in places like that where you've had recognition at first contact. Here, where issues in relation to Indigenous peoples, whether it is incarceration or many of us know only four out of the 19 closing the gap targets are almost being met, um, it's because of the, the way in which different parliaments um, like to handball off our issues but then reinvigorate them for election. I do hope that The Voice would have some kind of role um, in its design making to be able to bring a more consistent effort. We cannot live with these outcomes in this country for First Nations peoples. Like, it honestly 
whether it's the voice or even if it does fail, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people still have so much work to do in our communities and elders, as we've heard, have consistently been showing up doing that work. So actually, you know, when you think about it as well, there's work to do after a successful referendum and there's work to do after a not successful referendum. And I think the government is not being... Um, at the moment, very transparent with Australians about a roadmap on what might it look like for both options here. Um, you know, and I think that that is a duty of care responsibility on behalf of the government to be able to... And Marcia spoke about this recently at her press club conference. It's not good enough to be able to lead the nation to this point and, you know, with the the uncertainty of being a yes or a no, for me, I will still wake up the next day being a Wiradjuri and Wailwan woman, knowing my stories, knowing what community I come from and who I have obligations to. Um, I think white Australia need to be asking themselves, what did they do the next day? Thanks, Tira. Um, now, I'm conscious of the time because it is getting on, but... Um, during this referendum campaign, we have seen a rise in racism and, and racist commentary. Um, how do we as First Nations people care for each other in our communities? Ani Bronwyn, what can we do? What, how can I we look we, after we each other? we just keep on doing what we're already doing. But I don't think we should be concerned about facing the challenge. Because if it's not on the table, if racism is not out there in front of you, it's underground. And I think it's far more damaging when you don't really know where it's coming from. It's been, um, I think it's one of the things about reconciliation has been a band-aid to cover up some of that racism because you can do your reconciliation plan and, and so you can't really see it. In my view, I think we should put it on the table and I know that um, Human Rights Commission are about to do some work around this, about racism. We need to put it on the table and deal with it. Get up and deal with them. For all of those of you don't think we're right, that Australia's a racist country, or who, who, want, who, who want to do something about it being a racist country, do that. I think that's what you should be doing right at the moment. I think for us, we need to be talking to each other, maybe having advisory bodies with each other. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe that's where we could, uh, you could come to us for advice about how to deal with racism. Maybe we could lead that. Certainly know, I think we certainly know how to do it. We have to get on with it. We have to put up with it. We experience it every day. Every single day of our lives, we experience racism. So, yeah, you know, I think uh, that's something you actually could do something about. And perhaps that's where you should be challenging, uh, channeling your energy, is towards making this not a racist country and uh, not, not be looking for advisory and teaching around the edges. Yeah. That's wise words there, Arnie Bronwyn. Um, Teela... You know, what are your thoughts on that? How do we, you know, look after each other during yeah. this time? I think, you know, either way, we as First Nations peoples have always cared for our kinships and our country. We could not have existed since time immemorial if that wasn't the kind of people innately that we were, like caring, kind, peaceful people. And so I hope that people from all walks of life show kindness like it, um, we have been through 
so much. Uh, it's going to get much more difficult. The discomfort you are all feeling, um, embrace it because we do have to deal with it every day, as Aunt said. But I do think that there can be now the onus on non-Indigenous Australians to step up to the plate and start to help us combat the racism we are experiencing. In Australia, you know, we've seen leading journalists like, you know, Stan Grant leave jobs, leave key jobs, because there's no accountability when we encounter racism. And I do think for our future that there needs to be more systems change and more accountability in this space when we see and hear racism, because it's just not the kind of society I want to live in, but it unfortunately is the status quo. Uh, and many of our elders have had to have, you know, lived experience of that as a result of laws and policies. But I do think there is an opportunity to be able to, you know, individually care. Like, I put my toes in country, I swim in the saltwater, I sit under a tree, I take my... Like, sometimes it's just the simple things as well. And I think, you know, it doesn't go far these days to pick up the phone, call your friend, reach out to, to a First Nations person and just let them know that you are there. Whatever they're choosing to vote, that you are there to listen and be, be eased for them. That's lawyer and advocate Teela Reid. You also heard from director of the Redfern Foundation, Auntie Bronwyn Penrith, and one of Australia's most successful First Nations journalists, Carla Grant. They were speaking at a recent panel discussion recorded at the Australian Museum as part of the series Nights at the Museum, funded by the New South Wales Government. That's the show for now. Don't miss our next episode when I'm joined in conversation with storyteller Nadi Simpson. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and Sarah Allerley. You can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.